All right, Philippians chapter 2, um, we're going to be in verse 1 through 11 or so um, in, that, in that range. Um, here's what we're doing. This is the last sermon uh, for our Christmas season. The, we're, we're doing this series called God With Us, looking at what does it mean practically? What are the implications of Jesus being uh, born and living among us and becoming, taking on human flesh and form, um, that he didn't lose any of his deity, but he gained humanity in this whole thing. And what does that mean? And so we looked at a few different things. One, we looked at the most foundational, that he came to, to pay for our sins. He came to save us from our sins. Uh, Jesus had a mission. He wasn't just randomly going about life. He came for the purpose of saving his people. And so we looked at how that's the most foundational, fundamental thing about Christmas. Uh, without Christmas, without Jesus becoming man and, and taking on our form and living perfectly before the Father and dying on the cross, none of us would be saved. None of us would be right with him. And so that is the most foundational and important thing. But we also see that there's other things. And last week we looked at... Uh, the fact that Jesus, in living a human life, can actually enter into our lives to the point that he could understand all of our struggles. Uh, we call it empathy, right? That he, he was able to take on human form, but he didn't live this perfect, pristine life without any problems. In fact, he lived a really hard life. From the moment he was born uh, to the moment of his death, it was a life of suffering, rejection, hardship, and temptation, and, and so the Bible talks a great deal about uh, how Jesus can understand that and, and understand where we're struggling, whether it's, the, whether it's being in a season of temptation to sin, whether it's being in a season of suffering, whether it's being in a season of loss or whatever it may be. Uh, Jesus can empathize with us. He understands it because he lived it. And so we spent last week looking at that uh, aspect of Jesus's life on earth. Now, today, we're going to take another look at a different angle, uh, another angle of Jesus' life, and that is um, what we're just simply going to refer to as humility. Humility. Um, and that's what Paul's really going to deal with in Philippians chapter 2, is this idea that Jesus' birth is the ultimate display of humility um, that we as the church then should emulate. That's the point of, of these verses. That's what Paul's tr going to try to get us to understand, is that we need to look to Jesus so that we can experience the humility that we need as the body of Christ to live uh, in community with one another in the church and beyond the church, but among all believers particularly, that we can live in a humble way and, re and reflect Jesus to one another. So that's the point that Paul's going to make, and we're going to look at how that plays out um, so if you look at Philippians 2, Paul is, he's got a lot of great things to say to the Philippians. He loves the Philippian church. He's writing this letter um, from jail, from prison. And, uh, he's, and yet what's coming out of this letter is uh, just joy. That even though Paul's experiencing great trials in his own life, his personal life, He's still filled with the joy of the Lord, and he wants that joy to be conveyed to the Philippians. 
And so if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it starts this way. It says, um, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what Paul begins here in this chapter, in this part of the letter, is he just kind of runs off this string of assumptions, things that are true, that are just, they're true. And he's going to remind the Philippians and remind us of these things that are true. Um, he says, and in, in, in the Greek, in the original Greek, this is all one sentence. It's not grammatically broken up in the sentences. It's just, another, it's just a string of, of uh, encouragement um, from all, through all these verses, all the way through chapter, uh, verse 11, rather. It's all one big sentence, but of course we don't read it that way, so we got to break it up a bit. Here's what he's saying, though. He's saying, okay, he's essentially asking a rhetorical question, a, a string of them. And he's saying, is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, the answer is yes, right? Yes. Is there any comfort from love? Again, yes. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Any affection and sympathy? Yes. It's sort of like when you have uh, your kids and you tell them uh, to help you fold the laundry that you've just washed and purchased and did all this stuff. And they complain, why should I help you fold the laundry? Well, because I bought the clothes for you. I washed the clothes for you. I dried the clothes for you. So the implication is you can help, right? And so what Paul's doing here is he's kind of starting out that way. He's going, there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort in love. There is participation in the Spirit. There is affection and sympathy. And so here's what you should do. In light of the fact that those things exist, that Christ is our comfort, that he is our encouragement, that he is our, our love, uh, that he is our affection and sympathy, then you can complete my joy, he says, by being of the same mind, being, having the same love, the same love as Christ has, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying that the church ought to be unified around Jesus. That's what he's reminding them of. That because Jesus is our encouragement, because he is our love, because he is our affection and sympathy, and he's all of these things. So the implication is that we, as the body of Christ, as the church, this visible like picture of Jesus here and now, we ought to be unified around these things together. So when he says that we should be of the same mind and, have, uh, the, and be in full accord and, and have the same, he's not saying that we can't have diversity of opinions or thoughts. Uh, he's not saying that we all just have to be like robotic going in the same direction. But what he is saying is this, that we have to be unified around Jesus Christ. That's what we have to be unified around. It's not that we can't have differences of opinion on a lot of other things, uh, but around Jesus, there shouldn't be differences of opinion in the church. There should be Jesus is our comforter. He is our savior. He is our love. He is our affection. He is these things. So we need to come around each other in those same ways. And so then he goes on um, to continue to explain how the church ought to reflect who Jesus is. And look at verse three. 
He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're going to keep going in a minute here, but this is the, the thing that he's, again, calling the church to reflect who Jesus is. He's calling the church to look like Jesus. And, and the way that he goes about this is he's, he starts by telling us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. First, how we ought not to be doing life together, and that is we shouldn't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. We shouldn't be trying to gain our own, like, hey, this is my desire, my life. I, I just want what's best for me. I'm all about myself. That's, that's selfish ambition and conceit. It's believing that our lives are more important than others' lives or our desires are more important than others' desire. And so we, we're starting with this command. Don't be like that. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceitful. But rather, he says, in humility, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. See, true love is, is always after the other person's good, right? It's, we, we can call it humility. We can call it true love. We can call it whatever. But this is, this is the point that Jesus demonstrates for us what our lives ought to look like in, in that our, he did not uh, live a self-centered life. Let, let's look at what happens next. Verse uh, 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, so Jesus, is, now he's going to describe who Jesus is, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, this is an amazing thing because this passage is used by theologians to explain this very hard-to-understand reality that Jesus actually has always been God but then became one of us. It's a phenomenal, mind-blowing thing. And... So theologians and scholars have used these verses to explain or to help us understand what Jesus uh, did in his incarnation. And, and let's just look at a few of these things. It says that he was in the form of God. Now, it doesn't mean that he sort of resembled God, but it means he was God. I mean, he, he was in that, that position, that, that state, that he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's God, but isn't looking at his deity and saying, well, I'm just going to hang on to this. I'm going to hold on to this and I'm going to selfishly 
just cling to my godly throne in heaven and I'm never going to do anything. That's not what Jesus did, right? He didn't count equality with God something to be held on to selfishly. So instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He, he laid aside um, his heavenly throne. He never lost his divinity, right? He never lo- stopped being God. But he did uh, take on the form of a servant. Look, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born, by being born in the likeness of men. His, his birth, his entrance into the world was his ultimate act of humility. In leaving his heavenly throne, he laid aside his, his glory for a time to enter into the humble abode of, of humanity, right? This, this, this form of people that we all live and understand. And Jesus became that, though he isn't that by nature. By nature, he's God. So he takes on the nature of humanity in that act of, of humility and love in coming to the earth. By being born as a person, Jesus extends the greatest act of humility that there ever could be. That he left everything he had in heaven, all of the glory, all of the power, all of that. He laid it all aside for, for the time that he was on the earth. And he took on our form. And then he goes further, not just his birth, but then further humiliation in his death. If you look at verse 8, it says he was, in being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But so, so death is a hum- humiliating reality, right? It just, it is. Like nobody wants to die. And, you know, I think all of us understand, like, in the Midwest, uh, we, we're all about being polite, right? We, we want to be polite. And so most of us, if we were going to die, we wouldn't do it here in public. We'd go outside and die, right? <laughs> like, if you started having a heart, you'd just be you're like, I'm out the door. I'm going to die in the parking lot because I don't want to humiliate, you know, the people around me and make them awkward. That's how we are. Um, but so, so death in itself is a, is a very awkward, difficult thing. But Jesus didn't just die, like, he didn't just die of old age or something like that. He died the most humiliating death that, that there could ever be, this death on a cross. And I know that that concept can be a little bit lost on us because we don't live in a culture where we're crucifying people out in public. But the Philippians and the Roman world, they understood this. Um, there, there was a, a Roman uh, author, I th- can't, remember, can't recall his name, probably Cicero or somebody, um, but... They, they would talk about how um, in the Roman world, crucifixion was something you weren't even supposed to think about in your private thoughts because it was so shameful and so humiliating and so uh, just uncomfortable. And, and, and so Jesus dies, not just a quiet death in a, in a hospital bed, if there was such a thing in those days, but he, he actually dies publicly in the most humiliating fashion. And he, he does that for us. He does that to, to pay for the sins of each and every one of us. That he humbled himself by leaving his divine throne, entering into a, 
a, a, a dirty world, a sinful world like ours. He lived as a human being. And then on top of that died a criminal's death. Um, though he did, committed no sin, he dies a horrendously humiliating death. Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility. And so while we can look at these verses and say, wow, okay, this is a great theological explanation of what Jesus did for us when he came to earth. Paul's really, his point is not theological as much as it is practical. Paul's point is he's taking what Jesus did for us in the incarnation and he's applying that to how we ought to live in the church, right? Isn't that the whole point of what he's saying? He, he's, a, in essence, to use the terminology we use here, he's saying that gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture, that what we believe should inform how we live. That's the point. Like, we, we can get lost in, you know, and get into theological debates about some of these verses about Jesus, but the point that Paul's making is that Jesus, in his coming into the world and ultimately in his dying on the cross, it was the ultimate display of love and humility that ought to then shape how we love and live humbly before one another. This is where gospel doctrine meets gospel culture. And so Paul's point, what he's calling us to, is to live not in selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. We should actually look around the room, look around our church and say, if we're going to live the way Jesus lived, it should be, well, how can I pour out myself, my time, my abilities, my, my resources? How do I leverage these things that God has given to me for the good of someone else? That should be the question we're always asking is how can I use God's, like God has given us various things, various gifts, various administrations of his spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We have various opportunities to help. And that could be in the form of our, our wisdom that he's given to us. It could be in the form of his, uh, the talents that he's given us to use our hands with or to help people with. Or it could be in the form of, uh, many other things. But we should be looking at one another and go, how can I display Jesus to my fellow people in this church and, broad, and more broadly than that, but at least to the church and beyond that, how do I use what God has given me to bless them, to help them? And, and I know the argument tends to be, well, yes, but you know, I need to you know, take care of myself first. And, you know, there's some, there's okay, it's okay to take care of yourself, right? Paul says right here, um, he, he says in verse four, let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's okay to look at your interests. Yes, it's okay to care about yourself and to make sure that things are going okay for you. But not just that, right? It can't just be, well, it's all about me and I want to just... Have, have it my way or whatever it is. It, it's, yes, you need to care for your own situation, but you should also be looking out beyond yourself to the interests of others. Because that's what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus didn't even look to his own interests, right? He's, he's so much better than we will ever be. 
He's so much greater than we could ever be because he didn't look to his own interest at all. He looked to the interest of every one of us as he laid down his life, as he gave up his divinity for, for a time and lived and died for us. And so it, the, the point that Paul's making here is that if Jesus was willing to go through all of this, and he's not calling you to lay down your life physically on a cross for somebody else, but he is calling us, each of us, to see how we can help one another, to see how we can serve and be, be you know, available to others. This is the true definition of humility. It's what humility um, leads to, is caring for other people. I came across this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England a, a while back, and he, um, he says this. He, a friend asked me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt that there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, do that, or the other thing, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you'll soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him and you realize who he is and what he has done and you're humbled. And so what we have always been trying to help, uh, help one another understand is this, that it's all about Jesus. Everything that we want in life, it can, can be experienced ultimately in Jesus, right? It, that's everything that we, like, when you get beyond the superficial things, not talking about cars and houses and money, and beyond the, when we get to the true heart of what we long for as human beings, every single thing we long for can be found in the person of Jesus. And so as we look to Jesus, we will find ourselves living out the humility that he wants us to have because we can't be proud when we look to what Jesus did for us. When we look to the fact that Jesus came to our earth and was born in this stable in Bethlehem and was rejected by his family and was ultimately put on a cross to be crucified for our sins, there's no room for pride in any of that right? We look to Jesus and we go, wow, the kindness, the mercy, the love that Jesus has for us, that humbles us. And therefore, when we're humbled, we can begin to see with clear eyes that other people need help as well. And other people should be cared for. And, other, and we get to step into that space. That's what Paul's trying to make. He uses the Christmas story in a sense. He doesn't talk a whole lot about the manger or Bethlehem, but he talks generally about Jesus becoming a person, which is what Christmas is really about, that we celebrate that Jesus became a person, that he entered into humanity. That truth is what leads Paul to the Philippians to say, hey, 
you shouldn't care only about yourself. Why? Because Jesus didn't care just about himself. Jesus laid aside everything so that you could have eternal life with him. So what is it for us? How much of a sacrifice is it for us in comparison to Jesus for us to care for one another? There's not a whole lot. Like, it's, it's pretty humiliating if we start to think, well, you know, I know Jesus like left heaven and died a horrible criminal's death for my sin, but then to look at my neighbor who might need a few bucks or might need some time or might need me to, to care for them for a few minutes, to say, ah, well, I just don't, I don't need to do that. That's pretty, that's pretty pathetic. That's pretty pathetic. When you look to Jesus, like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when you look to Jesus, humility is something that, that happens to you. You can't create humility in yourself. You can't make it, but you can live in it as you see Jesus. And so that's what, that's what our hearts need to be drawn to. That's what our hearts need to be given over to this Christmas and every day, right? This is not just for Christmas. But Christmas is the time that we begin to think about this stuff a little bit more profoundly. You start to think about the people in your life and you're buying gifts and you're thinking, what would make them happy? Right? What, would, what would bring joy to that person's life? And you're probably thinking about that. You, hopefully you've already gotten that point because Christmas is Wednesday. So hopefully you're done with your shopping now. Uh, but the point is we're always thinking at this time of year, we're, we, gotta, we have this social obligation to buy people things. But, but that's a good thing in some sense because it forces us to think about someone else. Now, if we can transfer that to every day, we're, we're on to something. Not talking about buying people things every day, but I'm talking about thinking about their needs and what will bring them joy, what would bring them comfort, what would bring them consolation and sympathy, right? All the things that Paul mentions at the front end of this chapter. Shouldn't we be looking at one another and going, how can I be of encouragement to that person today? Because Christ was encouraging. How can I bring comfort to this person today? Because Jesus is our comfort. How can I bring my affection or my sympathy or, or help this person experience joy? Those are the questions that we ought to be asking and looking out at our, our fellow believers and saying, how can I be like Jesus in their life today? We do that at Christmas when we think about the gifts we have to buy, but, but we need to do this each day. We, we should see Jesus every day and what he's done for us and that should compel us to then care every day for the church. And I'm telling you, when we start to see gospel culture flourish, uh, there's, just, there's, there's no one who's going to be like, oh, I don't like that. Like we, we can have differences of opinion on, on styles and songs and, and color of carpeting and paint. Like we, you know, Christians are pretty notorious for bickering about silly things. But when we actually care for each other, when we're actually in and of the mindset that Jesus laid down everything for me so I should be willing to lay down my life for others, that creates a culture in the church that no one is going to look at and go, I don't like that. Unless they're really hard-hearted and, and really, I think, I'd say non-believers. <laughs> non-believers might not like that. But most non-believers will like it too. 
because it compels, it's compelling. It's something totally uh, different from the rest of the world. And that's what the church ought to be. It should be different from the world. We shouldn't treat each other the same way that the world treats one another. We shouldn't be looking at each other the same way that the world looks at each other. This should be a distinctly different kind of place because Jesus is here. Because Jesus is in our midst. Because the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. That the Spirit is participating with us in all of this. That's what Paul says in verse 1. That there is participation in the Spirit. So we have this reality that, that as we think about, like we can use Christmas as a parable. A parable is a, is a kind of a way of looking at another truth, right? Jesus would tell a story to make another, a different point from within that story. He, he would try to open our eyes to see. And so Christmas can be a parable of what life ought to be like all the time within the church. And that is not in the form of buying a bunch of presents for each other, but in the form of looking to the needs of one another. And what do they need that I can help meet? That's the question. And that's the kind of culture we want to see in our church. And I think as we grow in that, as we develop that, and it's not going to be an overnight thing, but it's a gradual, consistent, growing and maturing process. But as we do that, we're going to see this whole thing turn upside down in a glorious way. And people are going to be transformed by the grace of God because of it. So let me pray for us. I, that's, I, I've shortened this up. I intentionally created a short sermon for you because I know we got kids in here. So we're going to pray. We're going to partake of the Lord's table. We're going to sing a few songs um, that point us to Jesus. And then we'll, we'll have a great uh, rest of our week preparing for Christmas. So let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that you would do in us what you desire for uh, us as, as you did in Philippi that we would see one another as more significant than ourselves, that we would actually be intentional to look around in our, in our sphere and say, who can I uh, impact with the love that you have for us? Who can I lay down my life for, in essence? Would you help us, God, to do that? We know we can't create that in ourselves. It has to be done by you. And so we pray that you would do that work. And we ask you, uh, to, to shock us all by how glorious it really is. Um, we pray that the rest of our time in response would be of great joy to our hearts and to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.